Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of your favourite science program, Lost in Science. Um, Yeah, I'm saying it's your favourite science program. If it wasn't already, it will be after this episode because this is going to be an amazing episode. Why? Because I have with me two amazing people, Claire and Stu. How are you, both of you? Very well, thanks, Chris. Yeah, I'm also well. Great, great, great. And Claire, what amazing science-tainment have you for us? <laughs> science-tainment. Well, um, you know, it, it, you, you're building it up a little bit here, but hey, yeah. why not? Why the hell not? Um, so it is the end of school holidays for a lot of students around Australia. Everyone's gone back home and um, I've been noticing because I do travel on a lot of roads these days now I live on the far south coast of New South Wales um, I've been noticing a lot of gory roadkill so uh, today I am going to talk a little bit about roadkill um, you know and and some of the very interesting innovations that have been these collaborations between ecologists and engineers uh, to help mitigate or stop the uh, the sort of uh, effects of roadkill hitting of animals and um, and protect them and offer sort of safe passage between um, you know under or over or across roads and that sort of thing great uh, look let's hope it's not a, a bridge too far or a, um... <laughs> go on. I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll think of another one. I'll think yeah, of another yeah, one. Yeah, you've... yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to fence you in there. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, speaking of being on the verge, Stu, what have you got for us? Uh, well, I've got another sort of animal-related story, and it is also vaguely related to death and destruction. Um, but it's on a very, very tiny, tiny scale. I'm going to look at one of the most successful predators you never heard of, um, who are tiny little microscopic worm-like creatures that live all around you uh, without you probably realising it. But they're kind of everywhere, and I just thought I'd give them a little shout-out. And there's been some some research about them that, has brought to light that they kind of have a bit of a superpower as well. So I'll get into that <laughs> later. In Great superpowered, invisible, carnivorous, worm-like creatures that are surrounding us all the time. Uh, something new to be scared of, yeah. everybody. Um, so, yeah, you might want to cross that road after all. Um, yeah. Uh, well, on with the show. Science. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, 
to boldly go where no radio has gone before. School holidays across Australia, they've just finished. People are returning to the suburbs and population centres around Australia. And on the sides of highways, there's some pretty grisly reminders that it has been busy on the roads. I am... Like chip packets and stuff? Well, yeah, chip packets and Macca's packets for one, um, but also roadkill. Not, you know, it's it's pretty violent. Um, it can be very gory. And I've been seeing a lot of it pretty recently now, as I said in the intro. Um, I am living on the far south coast of New South Wales. And in my most recently, my most recent one and a half hour drive up the Pacific Highway, up the Princess Highway, I counted 17 different dead animals. And they were mostly wombats, but also kangaroos, foxes, possums. Uh, There's a lot of roadkill out there at the moment. So this week I wanted to talk a little bit about roadkill and some new innovations making roads safer for one particular animal, the Australian glider. Um, Now, long-time listeners of the show would remember our, um, our wonderful collaborator, Manisha, Her research was actually um, around looking at sort of collisions between wildlife and, um, and, and cars and how to make the roads safer for animals as well. She did her PhD on bats. Yes, I, I recall that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, um, this is a shout out to Manisha as well. And, um, you know, she being able to um, talk a little bit more about some of the Excellent Australian research that's happening in this space. Um, a little bit more. So your, so, I mean, bats obviously had their own little chunks. We're talking about. I think she's looking at micro bats, which are yep. the small ones. But you know, they are <laughs> flying mammals that go across. Yeah. might go across the road. You're also talking about a flying mammal. Well, you? you know, technically they're gliding, not flying, uh, and they're quite different. To bats, so they have very different ways that they need to be able to um, cross. So we'll get to that in a little bit, mm. in a little bit. But um, you know, it's it's interesting because we have a lot of roadkill in Australia. You know, people come to Australia and they're really taken aback by um, the amount of dead animals that you see on the side of the road because we have a lot of roads. Um, Australia's highway number one, it's the longest road in the world, the one that goes around the whole of Australia. It's 14,500 kilometres. I mean, it's a lot of roads put together. It's the Pacific Highway, it's the Princess Highway, it's the Bruce, it's the Stewart. Um, But... It is the longest road and mm. we ha- it's an ever-expanding web of roads that we have. It's carved up wilderness um, and, and our bush and it leaves animals often in fragmented habitats. Uh, can I give a quick shout out to one of the shortest highways in the world, the, um, the Chandler Highway in Melbourne, which <laughs> runs between the Eastern Freeway and Alphington. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
Like, great. It, it, it was yeah. supposed to be longer. They just decided against putting it through the Blue Ribbon Liberal seat of Kuyong. Mm. So it stops. <laughs> Shout out, shout out, noted. Um, now, we don't know exactly how many animals die on roads. Uh, you know, we, we, it's, it's hard to get an assessment of this sort of thing. It's, um, it's councils that often clean up and there isn't an official count, um, even though there is, if you are in Tasmania, an app that you can download and you can report um, a roadkill that you see on the side of highways, uh, but the CSIRO has done an estimate. It is a very conservative estimate, and it's just for native mammals, and they estimate around 4 million native man- mammals are killed annually. So that's, that's you know, um, quite a lot, but a conservative estimate, and that doesn't include things like frogs and reptiles. Who sprays them with pink paint? Well... I understand that that is groups like wires and other uh, other animal rescue groups that check the pouches for young and then spray them to notify other wildlife rescuers that those animals are have have been checked. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's an issue. I mean, you know, collisions with animals, are, it's an issue for humans as well. More than 5% of all fatal crashes in Australia are the result of an animal collision. In Victoria, the Transport Accident Commission says 11 people have been killed since um, or between 2011 and 2020 and more than 1,500 injured. So it's a big thing. These collisions happen, uh, but there are some innovations that are the result of collaborations between engineers and ecologists that help to promote and nurture the smooth flow of animal and human traffic. So some of these are, and you've probably, maybe you've seen some of them, maybe you've heard of some of them, uh, like wildlife crossings. We've got the overpasses and the underpasses, and they mimic habitat and provide safe passages for animals to cross. So these are like actual pathways across the highway. They're not just like when you see the sign that says animals Animal crossing, crossing ahead yeah. and the animals know where to cross. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not just a sign. This is an actual right. bridge or an underpass. Okay. Yeah, because um, those signs have been uh, shown not to work, unsurprisingly. Okay. Uh, and there's also specialised fencing. It can be installed in high-risk areas to prevent animals from accessing accessing the road directly or maybe that fencing can sort of help um, bring the animals to a safe place to cross or to one of these overpasses or un- underpasses that we're talking about. Uh, there are also innovations that instead of providing safe places for animals to cross, uh, warn drivers that the wildlife's around. So there's those, you know... Um, kangaroos for the next five kilometer signs that you see a lot there's also animal activated warning systems some of these are in the u.s so they are animal their um, areas have these animal activated warning systems they detect the movement of large animals like um i don't know moose came to mind but i'm sure there's there's a few other <laughs> large animals out there. They, they are a pretty large animal, yeah. They're a pretty large animal, <laughs> aren't they? And then they trigger flashing warning signs to alert drivers that these animals might be present. Another type of warning system is a sensory alert system 
built into cars and that can warn drivers within the car to slow down. So Volvo have a large animal detection warning system and that is in their North American cars. And apparently, I had a look, they were researching um, how they could implement this into Australian models and have a kangaroo sensor. Um, And they made a big announcement about it in 2015 and then I looked into it and, I mean, nothing has happened since. So that's been TikTok Volvo. It's been eight years and I don't see any kangaroo sensor in your car. So I don't know, maybe these things take a while. We're still waiting is the answer there. Um, So, yeah, when protecting animals around roads, what needs to be – like you sort of talked about at the start, the difference between bats and, you know, something like a glider, you really need to understand how that animal gets around and, um, yeah, what works for one animal isn't necessarily going to work for another. So this um, leads me to the innovation I want to talk about, these gliders, and it does, I think – take the cake for the most heartwarming innovation for road safety. I mean, it's it's pretty cute. Um, so these are glide poles. This is the innovation, glide poles. And <laughs> they're tall timber structures and they've got cross arms near the top. Now, if you imagine a telegraph pole, it's pretty much what it is. Uh, but hey, it's an innovation. And they give gliders uh, a place to be able to cross. So the glider sort of like shimmies up the pole and on one side of the road and then um, the poles have to be spaced, you know. They have to use a little bit of maths to work out where the poles are going to be spaced and how fast the glider can jump. Um, And then they jump from pole to pole and get across the road. And, yeah, they're specifically designed for our our gliders. They have been a few decades in the making. But, um, yeah, since 1993, um, they've been sort of developing these uh, glide poles. And um, now researcher Brendan Taylor, who's from Southern Cross University, has... Uh, successfully trialed these glide poles in Brisbane and trialed them in a position that is used as a land bridge where, uh, you know, a place where animals can cross the road safely, but these gliders didn't have uh, large enough trees that they could sort of jump from one to the next. So they put a bunch of these glide poles up and installed them sort of like making this sort of stepping stone connection between the forests and um, were very successful in recruiting the gliders to glide across the road. So they've had um, they've been successful not just in Brisbane but all up and down the coast, the east coast. They've seen squirrel gliders, sugar, feathertail, mahogany, yellow-bellied, uh, southern greater gliders. So, you know, those are some of the most endangered of our marsupials. They've all been recorded using the glide pole, which is just... just that is pretty amazing. Very, very adorable. Um, so, yeah, you you can see them if you're making a trip anytime soon on the Hume in Victoria, the Pacific Highway in New South Wales and the Bruce Highway in Queensland. Keep your eyes peeled. Um, and it's even been fundamental, these glide poles, to restoring squirrel glider movement between two uh, populations 
and getting gene flow happening between these oh. populations again. So, so that's why the glide across the road. So that's why the glide across the road to yeah. uh, promote gene flow, if you know what I mean. Wink, or to wink. Get busy. Yeah. <laughs> So there you have it. Even though our roads can be deadly for wildlife, next time you're driving up the highway, take a moment to appreciate some of the clever innovations and research that promote uh, safe passage for our wildlife. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. (laughs) Then we... Well, don't laugh. That's what really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guess is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compared to experiment or experience. Compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement, is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is, it doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, wrong. That's all there is to it. There's an often cited figure that puts the number of beetle species highest among animals, but just recently I've been reading, I think there might be a challenger for the crown of the of the most number of species. Now, they might not be as visually interesting, and actually they're much harder to see than most beetles, but I'm talking about a completely different kind of invertebrate animal called nematodes. Oh, uh, our oh. old nemesis, nematodes. <laughs> now, nematodes are also known as roundworms. Sometimes they're also called eelworms, especially if they're parasitic on plants. Um, but they're not really closely related to worms or earthworms or other segmented worms, and they're much, much smaller. They're microscopic. Um, but nematodes are found in ecosystems from the life aquatic in both freshwater and marine environments and even down in deep sea trenches. Even down in deep sea trenches. Uh, And ubiquitous in terrestrial environments from alpine areas to deserts. And they're usually living in the soil. So if you want to get an idea of the numbers of nematodes in the world, there are about 60 billion nematodes for every human being on earth that's whoa of, 60 that, billion yeah yeah you can have some of my, some of mine if you want Stu. <laughs> thanks i don't need thanks. 60 billion that's more nematodes than i can fathom yeah. yeah um estimates of the number of species range from a very conservative twenty five thousand to 
probably a more realistic figure of around a million species of nematodes. It's just very, very hard to classify them. So there's 256 recognised families of nematodes, and there's over 2,000 accepted genera. Uh, They're so numerous that a pioneering nematologist by the name of Nathan Cobb said, if all matter except nematodes was removed, the earth would still be recognisable due to a film of nematodes where every surface was. (laughs) Now... That's a and lot. How, there's, I there's, mean, how do they know there's this many? Because they're everywhere they look. Oh, God. They literally can find them everywhere they look. So, so, so if you've got a if you've got a microscope out now and you put it, say, on your table or your dinner plate or your child's dummy or something like that, would you see nematodes covering every surface? You, you potentially would, yes. Um, they're just they're just everywhere, but you're more likely to see them in you know in things like soil and oh okay you know they're they're, they're hunting for food mostly so they're not if there's right. no food if it's a clean surface they're not really going to be hanging around because there's nothing nothing for them to do okay so they're all over my house then basically yeah pretty much <laughs> um, so many species are parasitic or pathogenic of other species of plant and animal and more than thirty can affect humans but that is a tiny amount compared to the sheer number of species that exist um, and mostly they cause very few problems for humans or for domesticated animal and plant species and in fact some have been harnessed to help us out um, being used as beneficial organisms in crop production and greenhouses to prey on other pests so one species which is widely used for this purpose is called Steinonema carpocapsae, which is classified as an entomopathogenic nematode. Uh, it can be used as a ta- uh, used to target pest insects of various species. So, this nematode can detect carbon dioxide, and that is how mm. it finds its prey by. Uh, finding its way into their bodies through their spiracles, which are the holes through which insects breathe. Oh, right. And the nematodes get into the spiracles. Oh, gosh. Um, and uh, get in there that way. But it doesn't work alone. Uh, it has developed a symbiotic relationship with a bacteria, which it carries into its host and releases along with a cocktail of other proteins. So the combination of pathogenic bacteria and enzymes produced by the nematode that break down the host's immune responses kill off the host in a matter of days, leaving, leaving behind a food source where the nematodes can feed and breed before they eat their way out to go in search of their next victim. Now, this might sound perfectly reasonable if a little ghoulish uh, nematodes attack insects crawling around in the soil and eat them, and Hakuna Matata, it's the circle of life. But... That's not what Hakuna Matata means. <laughs> yeah, sure it does. That's what, that, that, was the, that was the message I got from the Lion King. Did I misinterpret um, but Steinonema carpocapsae doesn't just attack soil-dwelling prey, and this is kind of where it gets weird. 
It also attacks insects above the ground and even feeds on flying insects. As a generalist parasite, it's also known as an ambush forager. It can stand up on its tail and wait for passing insects to attach to, and they can even jump up into the air. Now, you would think you would have to be a pretty good jumper to catch onto flying insects, and a lot of research has focused on their jumping ability. They're, they're, the distances they can jump is quite astounding compared to their body size and all that sort of thing. But they also have another secret weapon, electricity. No, they don't, they don't shoot bolts of lightning at their <laughs> prey. Uh, they take advantage of static electricity that builds up in insect bodies when they're in motion. So crawling around in, in plant litter on the ground and flying through the air, the insects build up a static charge uh, just as they're moving around. So in research presented at the March meeting of the American Physical Society, um, some scientists used dead insects to test the hypothesis that static charges were helping the nematodes hit their target. Um, they suspended non-charged insects above hungry nematodes and observed how many could hit the target. And they noted that basically only the ones who jumped directly at the insect were able to hit it, which is not really a surprise. Mm. That That's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, predictable sort of outcome. But when they tested a statically charged example, they found that even nematodes that jumped in the wrong direction found their target thanks to the static electricity. So they basically just jumped up in the air and the static charge made them cling to this insect um, decoy, uh, which is pretty amazing and obviously a huge advantage for the little nematodes who just want to get in there and have their lunch, um, which is all fair enough for them. But I guess, um, you know, if you're any other kind of insect uh, trying to avoid um, being preyed upon by nematodes and you want to increase your survival rate, they have to just figure out how to lose their electric charge. And I think they wouldn't just be happier. They would be ecstatic. Oh. Uh. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.